And for many believers now, the uh, the days of um, being conflicted about, should I be in ministry? Should I make money? Should I just, we need to get past that. That's C-spot run. We need to go into the, 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 the deeper conversation, which is if God called you to wealth and influence in politics and government and media, if he called you to be a songwriter or an artist or a fashion director, grab it and say, this is what I feel my passion is. I'm asking the Lord to show me how this serves to advance his kingdom. In the meantime, I'm going to pursue the thing that I love and not try to make it fit arbitrarily into what the church tells me is spirituality. Because if you're not careful, you will, in an effort to circumcise your passion, you will castrate your calling. And so people cut off their ambition because they feel it's an unworthy goal to have influence or be in acting or whatever. I say, how do you know that God isn't calling you like Esther? to be in a beauty contest because you're going to be marrying the king. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Dr. Lance Wallnow. And today, my co-host, John Ramstead, and I are continuing our conversation with Lance. If you missed the first part of the interview, be sure to go back into the feed and listen to that one as we focused most of the total interview on the subject of convergence. Now, convergence is a theory by Dr. Bobby Clinton of Fuller Theological Seminary that deals with merging your God-given passions and talents into a fulfilling career where you're making a difference, making money, and just having fun. If you know anybody that's in a transition season and they're trying to figure out their destiny, please share these episodes with them. Lance gives some practical tips on how to figure out what you were created to do. A little about our guest, Lance is an internationally known business consultant and conference speaker. He has messages dealing with convergence, doing business supernaturally, working in the seven spheres of cultural influence, or as he and Dr. Bill Bright have coined them, the seven mountains cultural transformation, the power of clarity, the power of favor, and a bunch more. Lance's teachings have influenced the direction of this show probably more than anyone, and I can't wait for him to come back on in the future. Here now is the continuation of our conversation with Dr. Lance Wallnow. Lance, I'd love to take this piece of the conversation and go back. When you were talking about that woman and she was doing her list and that one piece was number six, and but you realize that's where her passion was. The thing I was, what I was thinking was, is this is about a sense of either fear of success or fear of failure, which just haunts the mindsets of so many people. When, how do you help people shift? What do they do to take that energy and move it toward this positive vision that they have instead of using it to avoid something that they fear? That's a great question. And, and clarity is power. And I always tell people that clarity is power. If you, can, um, if you can recognize what it is that you have as a passion and you can recognize what it is that you do best, um, then the, uh, the real secret sauce is not focusing on what's not showing up, but focusing on what you want to manifest. And so I really encourage people to write down the picture of career convergence and their spiritual life and their family and marriage and their I want all the phases and aspects that feed into who they are clear as to what they want to see happen so that when vision gets compromised when opposition comes rather than focusing on what's happening you focus on where you want to go I mean I had the Lord say this to me every now and then and it's very convicting 
he says, uh, in essence, stop complaining and praying about the problems and challenges and start focusing on what you want to see manifest. I had a friend of mine who was a race car driver who one year strapped me into a race car on a track and for my birthday paid for me to do hot laps. And so I had a, you know, a coach that, you know, was talking to me and about we went around a couple of laps and he strapped me in and was telling me primarily what to do when you lose control of the race car. And um, it's kind of shocking in a way, you know, if you start, if you're on fire, what do you do? I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, my, I, what are you inviting me to? <laughs> what a great birthday present. I get yeah, burned to death. But what this guy said to me was, he said, when you're when you're moving fast, if you start to lose control, he said, and you see where the walls are here, you'll you'll you know you'll you'll your instinct is going to be to focus on the wall and hit the brakes. He said, I'm going to encourage you to do something counterintuitive. Don't focus on what you're trying to avoid. Focus on where you want to go. And so at the, don't look at the wall because, frankly, if you look at the wall, you'll slam on the brakes and you'll go for the wall. What you want to do is you want to turn the wheel and your head where you want to go. And think about that. So one of the things with that item number six is we move it up to item number one. We redefine really what we really want to see show up. And then when life shows up, we go back to the statement of what we want to show up rather than what we want to avoid. The reason why people don't go for what they want is because they're afraid of the pain of that'll come with not getting it or the pain they have to go through in order to achieve it. But if, and so that negative energy just blocks you up. But if you focus on the outcome you want to manifest, you move actually easier in that direction. So uh, focusing on what you want to see show up is a discipline because it's easier to fixate on the problem than on the manifestation of a solution. But what are we called to pray for as believers? Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive it and it, you know, and it should be manifest. What you desire that is in line with the will of God is what you have to speak out. And I would say this for people listening. You need other people to make this happen. And I have found that I've had to ask prayer partners and people that I work with to pray for me. Because I don't know the constraints that are working in me. I don't know the circumstance that I'm up against. I do know that when people are praying, I have a better ability to access the divine enablement to do the thing that I'm having a problem doing. And so, you know, like, like Paul said, he was not ashamed to ask for prayer. And I think sometimes in our self-reliance or in our maybe our false definition of not wanting to be a burden, we don't recognize that if we don't share our challenges – and ask for prayer from people that actually will pray, that um, we're not tapping into the available resource of grace that can come through other people standing in agreement with us for what God wants to do. You know, that's such a great concept. And, you know, my forum, Pinnacle Forum, we get together and we talk about what that is so we can be praying for each other in a very different way that's really, uh, and it's something you've taught on before, if 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 I have this desire for significance or I have it for wealth and I, and it's not in what you call, uh, uh, convert, not convert, congruence. Right. Right. So I'm out of congruence really with myself. Yes. And what I'm trying to do and the reason is God put that long in my heart, but I'm running it through who I am and my personality. I have not connected that need for significance or wealth or to, you know, help abused women to this longing in my heart. And that's what you're really, it sounds like to me, you're talking about is how do you connect 
these emotions, these passions, these feelings that you have to what God sowed in you and created in you and really authentically then bring that out in your life. Right. And is, is that correct? It is. And so when we talk about real convergence, we're talking about showing up authentically as the best you. And it's the you that is, is in Christ and it's Christ moving through you in the thing that you're gifted to do and, and have grace to do. And it's, um, and it's producing results in other people's lives. And, uh, you know, the, the violin can be, can, the, the strings can be strained if they're too tight. And so every now and then we need to um, go back and visit the peace of God, the love of God, the rhythm of God, the Sabbath of God, and relax the bowstring so they don't snap. And uh, that we put this right kind of tension into our life so that people aren't picking up on the, um, the battle we're, we're carrying, but they're picking up on the grace of God on us. And I haven't done that really as well as I want to lately. And so in my thinking, I have to go back to conversations with the coaches and the people that know what that zone looks like and help me go back there. And um, everybody needs those people that they can talk to that help them, you know, um, know where the sweet spot is and how to stay there. Well, you know, on that line, if if I've become self-aware of my constraints, I'm congruent with who I am, I'm moving toward convergence, and and you're working with a lot of people, coaching them on that process. Where are places you find people get stuck? Um, I find that people get stuck in the lack of clarity on the behavior that they are bringing into the environment that is hindering the outcome they want. Mm. So, for instance, putting on Christ sometimes means that I have to take management of my physical energy. So my face, what I look like, I mean, this is really basic stuff, but the emotional intelligence aspect of how I'm managing my own energy is going to have a direct impact on how other people are feeling my energy. And energy, it sounds like a new age word, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. When you're around somebody that's stressed out and frustrated or irritated, they exude a dynamic in their, in their physiology that makes you kind of back up. <clears throat> so the first law of leadership is you have to manage your own behavior and know how you're showing up because you're creating an environment everywhere you go. And as a leader, your business is to shape environments. So make sure that you're shaping it with the disposition of Christ. What that means for, for me is uh, I have to take time to make sure that everybody that um, I'm encountering doesn't feel like an intrusion in my life or a cog in the wheel of my success. I, and it's a discipline because I have to make sure that people feel validated for who they are and that they know that I value them and appreciate who they are. And, they, and especially if they're working around me as family, that they're more important than what I'm doing. And I never want them to feel like they're secondary. And it's a battle for people that are driven by goals and achievement. But I think if we would really think about it, um, what God is doing in my awareness right now is a lot of work on helping men get into actualization or convergence by working with their wives. Because the wife that you're with is the greatest feedback mechanism on your strengths and weaknesses. And they're also the best accountability partner for how you're showing up. And so I think that uh, the underutilized uh, secret weapon is for couples 
And I know guys, I mean, I'll tell you the truth, the guys, especially guys at the top of their mountain, they don't want their wives around their business. They don't, they're making a big mistake. I'll tell you something. The wealthiest man I know is a $7 billion guy I, I, I worked with, $7 billion in Asia. And um, he, his wife is an intercessor and prays and gets together with uh, the girlfriends and they pray. Twice she has saved him from bankruptcy on bad decisions by her um, hearing God talk to her about warning him about something he was doing. And I think Christians make a big mistake when they, when they waffle their life and categorize it. This is my marriage. This is my work. This is my thing. I think evangelicals to a degree, because they're, they're, they're able to be so disciplined and cerebral, they miss out on this especially. And that is to make sure that you're um, cultivating the feelings and relationships with the people uh, around you that love you and that are stakeholders in your calling and uh, solicit their feedback and their prayer. You don't ask them for advice on decisions. You ask them for um, support on the challenge and share whatever it is the Lord gives them. And in this case, this man twice was um, one time. This is crazy. One time, he was going to engage in some very risky business, and his wife told him, if you do that, you will die. And what he was going to do was going to have political ramifications and military ramifications. And um, it sobered him up. I mean, he told me this right in front of her. I said, did you say that to him? She said, the Lord told me. What he was about to do was so audacious that it would cost his life, and he must, and he, he has to take this before the Lord. Now, that she says, you know, it takes a lot of risk when you tell your husband that. But you know what he looked at me and he said? She was right. And so... Um, but they also had the relationship where they could have that communication. A lot of people have shut that down because they've compartmentalized things so, so well that you don't even have those conversations with your wife or your husband or even your close friend. We don't. And, it, you know, it reminds us that when Jesus was on trial, who was it that had insight into the real dilemma before the great Pontius Pilate. It was his wife. Mm. She sent him a note. She sent him a text and said, be careful what you do with this man. I had a dream about him last night. He's a good man. Watch what you do. This just adds to the perplexity of Pilate because his wife had inside information on something that was in his jurisdiction. If God will do that for a heathen ruler, how much will he do it? more will he do it for his own sons and daughters? Lance, I really believe that a large part of the success of Focus on the Family in the 80s and 90s was due to the fact that Shirley Dobson had an office right next to Doc and the two of them and Shirley was a board member and she was a part of a lot of major decisions over the course of that time. And, and it, Focus eventually at its peak was a $150 million a year revenue ministry, which is pretty big. Oh, no. And it was the most powerful Washington lobby in terms of um, its power to shape and get an audience on policy. Whether they liked it or not is irrelevant. They had the power to do that. And, uh, you know, the other thing I want to point out here is like behind me, I don't know if you can see this, but I've got these uh, mountains behind me, these various pictures of, you know, I do. Part of the reason that I, I'm, I'm into the career convergence conversation is because. I think that we have to always plug in all the parts in us, passion, values, um, convergence in doing, knowing what it is you do best, not being moved out of it and being able to follow the Lord. 
inviting the people around us that love us as prayer partners and feedback people that God can speak to. And our family is a major part of it. We compartmentalize your family, my friend, is part of your destiny. So, you know, sharing with them what's going on and incorporating them in, in, in the prayers actually creates faith for your kids. They don't have to lose their faith if they see Christianity really works for you. So um, these things are all moving parts. But the big picture that I, I want to make sure I don't miss on this conversation is wh what's the convergence for? I mean, obviously, for what purpose does one come to the apex of that, you know, calling and stuff. And I believe that in the world right now, nations are being shaped by the people that occupy the gates of influence, the gates of influence in government, the gates of influence in media, in arts, in economics, the gates of influence in education, the gates of influence in the church, and who is shaping the family. If we would be really partnering with God at the level that he wants us to, we'd recognize that our, our career and our work and our calling is feeding into a bigger narrative, the story of what Jesus is doing. Jesus was promised nations for his inheritance. And for many believers now, the, uh, the days of um, being conflicted about, should I be in ministry? Should I make money? Should I just, we need to get past that. That's C-spot run. We need to go into the, 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 the deeper conversation which is if God called you to wealth and influence and politics and government and media, if he called you to be a songwriter or an artist or a fashion director, grab it and say, this is what I feel my passion is. I'm asking the Lord to show me how this serves to advance his kingdom. In the meantime, I'm going to pursue the thing that I love and not try to make it fit arbitrarily into what the church tells me is spirituality. Because if you're not careful, you will in an effort to circumcise your passion, you will castrate your calling. Mm -hmm. And so people cut off their ambition because they feel it's an unworthy goal to have influence or be in acting or whatever. I say, how do you know that God isn't calling you like Esther to be in a beauty contest because you're going to be marrying the king? So um, these spheres, these mountains are ultimately the key influencers that shape nations. And I encourage every believer to think of their Abrahamic covenant, to be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath, to be a blessing to many nations. Start seeing yourself as somebody that's called to shape culture and to, and to lead as a kingdom influence. And look at the gates of influence in these seven areas, and, or what, however you define it, and say, where's the gate in my life that God's calling me in this season to take a seat at. If you ask a different question, you might get a, you might get a whole lot of illumination on your calling in a way that you never get when you focus on you. And, um, and it starts local, you know, on a national level, we know what the national gates are. You can go to Tehran and Iran. You can go to Moscow and Russia, you go to Washington, the United States, the apostle Paul, 18 out of 22 cities that he went to were governmental centers. It tells you something about God's vision for church planning and apostolic influence. They were governmental centers shaping their, their city-states. So, um, but you look at like David, look at the field you've got right now and dominate it. Bring the kingdom in, own it, take possession of it. He had a few sheep, but that kid between his harp and his slingshot, he was qualifying to move into a king's palace. So you work with all the significance that this, uh, that this requires 
even when there's no audience and no big game in front of you, pour your life into what you're doing. Whatever you do, do is under the Lord and focus on clarifying your skill sets and showing up the way you want. Because what you do in that backyard with those few sheep is is target practice for what you do in Goliath on a national stage. And the church has to see itself as being prepared in secret for something in public. And um, and so uh, I, every phase of calling is significant, even if there's no big audience. I believe that in the local community, there's media and there's politics and there's education. I encourage Christians, get involved in the game. Find out where influences shape and decisions are made and begin to qualify as somebody that God can promote into influence to show up at the gate and have influence at the gates. Because this is going to ultimately come down to shaping cultures and nations. I believe we've got believers spread out in every nation who need to hear the call of God. Conversions for them is taking them to the top of a mountain, to go to the next mountain, to go to the next mountain until they're actually shaping much bigger affairs than they thought they would because we're called to be um, influencers in the culture we live in and not influenced by the culture. Yeah, we're called to take territory. I I would love your comments on something I've noticed just with the evangelical movement in the church today. It seems to me like there's so much talk about the end times and Christ coming back and the focus is on evangelism winning new souls. and what But nobody is discipling people. They're not talking about how to take territory, how to equip each other, how to mentor our, our brother. The churches are not filling that role. And it's like we have this army, the body of Christ, that's preparing to depart. We're preparing to seed and evacuate territory. And when that happens, there's this huge vacuum that's created, and all the forces out there just come in to fill it up. And what you're talking about is the strategy to counteract that, which I think is is really counterproductive to what God has planned for his kingdom today. I love your it's thoughts am- on that. It's amazing. And, and it's all based on, I mean, this is like, I want to start the next interview we do on this subject. Because, I, I mean, if you guys want the heat, we'll, we'll create the, the lightning rod for the lightning. They bring the heat. Because the, uh, the insanity of this problem is perplexing if if uh, if you know that you're on the titanic you don't want to focus on the chapel service and the attendance and how many satellite chapels you're able to plant you want to get yourself up on the deck where the icebergs are and start to show people how to identify in other words if nations are if we're really in the end times and you're paul on board a ship Mm -hmm. imagine this paul is on his way to rome but the decision-making of the leaders on that ship is going to shipwreck him. He tells them what they're doing is wrong, but they overrule him because, after all, he's just a religious fanatic on his way to Rome. He's not the captain of the ship. He's not a centurion, and he's not the uh, guy that owns it. He's not in government, business, or a service industry. He's just a passenger. So they make the dumb decisions, and they get themselves into a perfect storm. And they start, as he said, we will lose cargo and potentially our own lives. But Paul has an unfinished assignment. And what saves their butts is the fact that Paul was called to go to Rome and he's on board their ship. We are on board the ship of state. And I can be frustrated with the incompetence I see in handling a budget deficit of $18 trillion. I can look at the dissolution of culture in America. But the, if you don't mind me saying so, the harbinger point of view, which is the... Um, 
which is the doomsday scenario based upon the Twin Towers coming down and the clock ticking on the United States, mm-hmm. would be like Paul writing a book saying, if you don't listen to me, this is what's going to happen. But Paul would have been on board the ship that went down. So what did Paul do? Paul went to God in prayer because um, he had an unfinished assignment. And an angel shows up and says to him, God has now intervened. And uh, he has granted to you all those that are sailing with you. Before, Paul was sailing with them. Now that God is on the scene and all hope is kind of lost, they're sailing with you. And what's going to happen is the ship's going to break up. But don't worry about it because I've got certain territory for you that you're going to go to. And uh, it's an island. Now, what happens is the ship breaks up. Paul tells them, take heart. He takes over the ship, directs them on what's going to happen next. When they hit the island, the word Malta, if you exegete it, actually means the sweet spot. The church, because its fidelity to the calling of God and its assignment of discipling nations is not done, is going to be able to take even the worst case scenario, what happens in the United States, and turn it into the sweet spot of expanded territory for the kingdom of God, because on Malta, Paul dominated the next stage. And um, in some way, uh, Malta became added to the apostolic itinerary of his Rome trip, and God gave him a nation while the new vehicle was being built. I believe, like many others, that if America doesn't address its systemic problems, it's going to have an economic reset, potential shipwreck. I also believe that most Americans are narcissistic in the sense that we can't imagine a world without America. And we forget that China is probably, and India, are going to play a prominent role. And right now, in terms of gospel and evangelism, the activity is moving to the east. What I want to do is make sure all my friends in the Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Indonesia, Japan, and China are listening to what I'm teaching. Because this is their opportunity to shape culture while America is in a reset. But it doesn't mean that America is is uh, destroyed. It means that America is in rebuilding and that we actually, because we're here doing what God called us to do, have an effect on the future of this nation. It's sailing with us in, uh, in due time. So <clears throat> the doomsday scenario that has everything down to evangelism and escape is a convenient way of saying that we don't have a bigger game plan than making disciples of nations and that there are other nations other than the United States. But you guys remember Deming, Edward Deming? Mm-hmm. The, the, um, you know, the, he, was, he was the guy that built Japan after World War II. And he made the saying made in Japan an indication of technological advance as opposed to cheapness. Deming went to the American industry, industrial um, sector after World War II and said, we're going to have to do business differently. He was rejected. He went to Japan and literally modernized the Japanese business so that they became a major competitor of the United States. America's gift in the world is leadership and innovation. And I think uh, the church and this conversation and you guys are part of the leadership and innovation matrix that is going to continue on with Malta and other nations while America is being rebuilt. And I believe that uh, the church is going to have its greatest hour in America in the crises because it's going to go from federal to local. When the federal government can no longer solve problems, everything comes local. 
and local is where your church is, your Christians are. And so I'm saying get in the game now and start shaping culture because the game's all going to go local before this is over. You know, to I love what you just said. And, you know, if you study revivals and movements and causes in the past, from the American Revolution to the Civil Rights Movement, it only takes 2 to 3% of the population to get a common mindset, to get involved and to completely transform the culture and everything around them. So what you're talking about convergence is people, what you, something you said before stuck out at me, the people that do this well are people that have very disciplined perseverance toward that process. And so what the outcome can be, not only just excellence in your own life, but if you can go out and influence one or two people around you and two or three people out of a hundred catch the vision, catch this identity in Christ, be, get into this place of convergence, we can totally remake this country into some what some people just sit around around a campfire and just wish that it was, but it's not that far away if enough people do what, exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. It's the minorities that are controlling the tops of these mountains right now. The gates of influence are come down to the 2 or 3%. Mm-hmm. The problem is our worldview has always been, or has often been, us against them, Christian versus secular. What we have to see is that if you're going to invade the strong man's house and bind the strong man, you actually have to leave your house and go into his. Mm. So we have to go into the universities, go into media, go into journalism, go into government, go into legislation and school boards. And rather than go in as the surly, um, nervous um, evangelicals who are afraid that Armageddon is coming, uh, we should go in like Paul did and and um, exercise leadership in terms of showing what the results of decisions are going to be and going on record with it and staying with the process to say, OK, like like Paul said, you should have listened to me. But then after that, he said, but forget that. You all know that now. Here's what we need to do. And leadership becomes like Churchill. Churchill is a great model because he saw the threat of Hitler when no one in the country wanted to talk about another war. And so they said, get rid of Churchill. My gosh, this man is a problem. Until Hitler uh, took Poland. And all of a sudden, they said, get Churchill. Why? Because Churchill had the courage to define the, um, the trajectory of circumstances so that he dealt realistically with the problem. You know, one of the first challenges of leadership is to realistically define what's happening. Mm-hmm. The second challenge of leadership is to create an empowering alternative. And so those of us that can see what's happening need to be heard. And, uh, and then it gives a little bit of, I think, opportunity to say, now that that's happened, here's what we do next. Um, it will be treated with derision by those that are, you know, um, politically oriented against the church. But I think that the American receptivity is going to change when the policies and chaos of the existing structure uh, is shown to be inadequate for the storm. I think there's going to be a great argument for what's the alternative. The church needs to be talking about the world it wants to create rather than the world it wants to escape. Lance, uh, how important is it for Christians, for evangelicals to pray for that Churchill type leader to rise to help steer this country and it really help steer the world in, in, in a great direction because Churchill wasn't exactly embraced by the evangelical community. Neither was Abraham Lincoln. Neither was uh, 
God used Cyrus in a mighty way to help get the Jews back to Israel. So how, how important is it for evangelicals to dispel this notion, oh, we need to find the the next great evangelical clone? Because, you know, in the last election, I personally saw it. I saw Dr. Dobson sided with a couple politicians, and then you had uh, Jim Garlow in San Diego, who, who was really hard behind Newt Gingrich. And then you had a, a large group of evangelicals that were behind Rick Perry, and it really split the evangelicals in such a way that it it was sad to watch. And if you had a good Jewish uh, sense of humor, almost comedic. Exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, okay. The, the, you know what the funny thing is about what you're saying is that um, the church makes this mistake. And Chuck Colson, I have to say Chuck Colson actually was the only one who broke through with me on this because I fall into the same stupid trap. And that is I forget history. I forget that there's a thing called common grace. Common grace is what all mankind has access to. It's what raises up a Reagan or a Gorbachev or um, a Lech Walesa and a Margaret Thatcher who bring down the Berlin Wall and dismantle the Soviet Union. My gosh, they didn't pass anybody's litmus test of a short list of born-again Sunday school teaching. They were simply anointed for their assignment. So this goes back to passion and talent. God gives passion and talent to everyone. He just doesn't give it to Christians. So therefore, Lincoln had a a talent and an ability, an ingenious capacity to work with the unfolding evolution of a crisis and find a way to to come out in front of it. He he literally stewarded us through that storm. And uh, to your point, um, the revivalists didn't consider him great as a Christian because he never attended church. And, you know, he didn't have an official affiliation with one. He had common grace. Chuck Colson pointed out to me um, that common grace is a reformation idea that basically says that uh, when Paul says that the policeman or the, the you know, the, that, the, that the civil servant does not bear the sword in vain, but they are there for the rewarding of good and punishment of evil, Paul in Romans was making a statement that even the Roman Empire and government in general is operating under some kind of grace of God so that order is established in the universe rather than chaos and anarchy. So Paul said, pray for rulers and those who are in authority that we may lead a godly and peaceable life. He didn't say, replace them with Christians so we can disciple a nation. He said, pray for the rulers in various spheres of life so that we as a body can have the domestic peace and tranquility to do our job of influencing culture and changing the world and evangelizing. So I say the mistake that we make, and Dr. Dobson, much to, you know, he's done brilliant things. But in this sense, this was a mistake. To do interviews with politicians in order to develop your own litmus test as to how born again they are is to assume that the fundamental credentials of a man for office is how much of a Christian he is versus how deeply and profoundly he embraces the principles and ideas that resonate with the kingdom of God and whether or not he has the requisite skill sets to administrate that. So Jimmy Carter becomes the first born-again president. Pat Robertson and everybody got behind him when Christians came of age in the 70s. And we're all gaga about, we got to, this man's an evangelical, he's born again. We're going to have a Christian president. And everybody's disappointed because right away he starts doing goofy stuff when he's in office. And the realization is the fact that someone's a Christian doesn't mean that they're the most competent or capable of leading a nation through a crisis. Churchill, Lincoln, great examples. 
it would be great if they were because they'd have a kind of inside track with us and we could all talk, you know, Christianese. But if they have common grace, we have to have uncommon perception of who they are so that we can align behind Churchill's principles. You know, Churchill was the one that defined the issue with Hitler as the battle for the survival of Christian civilization. Can you imagine a U.S. president? Oh my gosh, they gag him. If, if they were to ever say that what is at stake right now in the world is the survival in the Western Hemisphere, Europe and the United States, of Christian civilization. They'd be booed off the stage, but that's uh, what Churchill said because he saw it clearly. I probably, it might be that Neville Chamberlain wasn't evangelical. I suspect that there were some Christians that were in, in Parliament, but none of them understood the principles that resonated with the kingdom as profoundly as Churchill. So what we really need to look for is not the man who's the most born again, but the man whose principles are congruent, visceral, not you know, like Bill Clinton with his finger to the wind with uh, Dick Morris doing focus group studies, mm -hmm. but they, like Reagan, they bring with them a worldview that is congruent, and they're telling you what it is before they get there, and they act consistent with that after they show up. Well, you know, and I, I think politics is incredibly important. I started the Faith and Freedom Coalition here in Colorado to get evangelicals and Catholics involved in the political process and educated. But I, I think, you know, instead of supporting a politician, and this puts, I think for me, your 3C concept really into focus on why this is so important, because this isn't just about the politics, this is about the nation. You know, in Romans, it, you know, it says there's no authority except what God has established, and the authorities that exist have been established by God, which means, I believe, the people that are elected in really these principal positions, president, senators, are a reflection of our society and the culture that we live in that we've been complicit in creating. So if we want things to change in a way that's meaningful, we have to get involved right where we sit, at our desk, in our company, in our own life, in our marriage. And then it, it, that grows from there, that, that those ripples expand out into the culture. And then all of a sudden, God says, you know what, you're worthy of a leader like that. I will appoint a leader that reflects who you've become and how you're honoring me. And I, I think for me, as you're talking, that's just what's on my heart on why, you know, focusing on just my working on who I am uh, is just one of the most essential things I can be doing with my life. Totally true. And, and um, what's coming up for me is just a kind of an incendiary thought, but I'll throw it out there, is that it's also the tone deafness, even in government by Christians not being meaningfully engaged, mm -hmm. that produces and let's say that with the Republican Party in their in their choice of candidates from, you know, let's say Dole to McCain to Romney, the country club Republicans are are have always had a very awkward relationship with the focus on the families, the Jerry Falwells and the James Robesons, because um, I don't think we brand as well as we could who Christ is to them. I think that uh, that that at times we re we define who we are in a way that is more negative than positive. And uh, what I would love to see is, um, is more voices rising up within the moderate Republican world who can represent Jesus in a, in a more winsome way mm -hmm. and be able to not scare and startle the horses out of the barn in the country club Republican world, 
but actually get their attention and recognize that what we need is a Reagan or a Churchill, um, someone who actually can capture the American dream and recast a narrative that America isn't the bad guy, but actually is a blessed country and uh, not perfect, but um, not evil. And that, uh, and that when that happened, the social movement of the Christians over here aligned with the economic movements of the Jack Kemp and the Country Club Republican guys, and they found in Reagan a common point they could get behind. And so we not only have to pray for leadership to emerge, we have to pray for leadership to emerge that we don't burden with an evangelical litmus test or confused feedback or, um, or make them have to be the Messiah that solves the problems that we've been incompetent to solve. Don't give them the LGBT battle. Don't give them prayer in the public school. Don't take every issue that you as a Christian failed to influence in your own neighborhood and think that you're going to elect somebody to become pastor and commander in chief of the United States. Their biggest battle is going to be creating a fresh narrative for who America is. Hey, amen to that, Lance. Amen. And, <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, stewarding us through a, um, the process impossible, possibly of curtailing our appetite for consumption from government and living within the realistic means of what we have without uprisings and burning cities all over the country. Mm. There is a worthy objective for all of our megachurch capacity. Let's focus on how to solve that problem. I guarantee the believers that come alongside of leadership and say, we want to help you, um, are going to be uh, a welcome voice in, in, uh, in this process, if we approach it right. You know, as we wrap up, Lance, people have been listening to this two-part series with you and, and this teaching. They're, they're getting to work, they're working out, and they've been just processing everything they've heard. What, what final thoughts would you like to leave with them? Well, uh, first of all, I think I could give them, if they want to see what the Seven Mountain Strategy is, at LanceWallnow.com. L-A-N-C-E-W-A-L-L-N-A-U, LanceWalnut.com. I right now have a six-minute video that explains the essence of what I teach from a template for nations on, on how Christians engage the battle of this hour. Um, and while it's up, I encourage people to go look at it because you'll get in six minutes what I, I'm giving most of my life to doing right now. The, the thought that I would say is um, to... To begin to get clear about the kind of world you want to create and begin to engage the process more realistically of surrounding yourself with people of like vision. I can't tell you how, like Daniel for me in Babylon, what he had was a microchurch. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel helped take government mountain. For them, because every crisis they were handed, they gathered together, they prayed, they support each other. And as a microchurch in the midst of Babylon, they were able to access heaven for solutions to problems that promoted them in influence with four administrations. That gives me a model. And the model is find the peers, not many, but the handful of peers that are iron sharpening iron, whose skill sets complement your own, whose assignment and ambition and calling is like your own. And begin to seek the Lord on how you can force multiply and support each other. And so that you're not standing alone up against the gates of hell, but you're actually like the cohort group, like Maximus in the arena, mm. locking your shields, moving as one 
and in a sense, shifting the environment. I'm praying for you guys that you uh, that you continue to have a bigger and bigger audience for this conversation and that you attract cohorts in these small groups, micro groups that will be students and engaged in your processes and listening. And maybe you could through this, uh, the medium of what you guys are doing, you can inspire a movement, a global movement of micro church leaders who are in their mountain um, recognizing that they can't do what they've got to do alone, but if they're going to really tangibly invade the strong man's house, they need to have um, those that are on the left and on the right of them that are covering their flanks. And I think God will be pleased by this and will give us unprecedented success in the Babylonian world that is. If you'd like more information about Lance, his website, his book that he co-authored with Bill Johnson, his Facebook page, which is very active and how I got familiar with him, his Twitter handle, his blog, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 031. That's eternalleadership.com slash 031. And there in our show notes, we'll have links to all that, plus links to purchase audio and video messages like Doing Business Supernaturally, Your Destiny Dashboard, Favor, Marketplace Invasion, many more. All those links and more, eternalleadership.com slash 031. I said it on the last episode and I'll say it again, Doing Business Supernaturally 101 and Doing Business Supernaturally 201. I've listened to it, I don't know how many times in the probably four or five months that I've owned it. It's really worth the investment. If you're listening on a smartphone, tablet, or computer, you can just click the link embedded in the description and information on this MP3, and it'll take you directly to the show notes for this episode. Special thank you to everyone that has given us feedback through email, social media like Facebook, through Twitter, or LinkedIn. We genuinely appreciate that feedback, both the positive feedback and the suggestions. Extra special thanks to Justin Jeffrey for his editing and production help on this episode. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, Douglas Napier. There is a lot of fiction out there, and a lot of that fiction is, I think, an intentional uh, effort to intimidate Christians from sharing their faith. Doug gives us practical advice on the do's and don'ts of faith in the workplace. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Mm-hmm.